Namaste to all of you. I'm glad to be with you here tonight. We're going to speak, uh, I hope, uh, innovative way about the history of yoga, a spiritual phenomenon, because when we study the history of the yogic texts chronologically, the history of the great yogis chronologically and their contribution, how each one of them changed the environment of yoga, the history of the different lineages, texts, and all the rest, we are basically studying something very interesting because we are studying the history of humanity. The general traditional view is that humanity starts in a cycle of 26,000 years. It starts from Satya Yuga, the Golden Age, and it goes down to Kali Yuga, towards the end of which we are now, the Iron Age of the Greeks, and therefore there is a certain decadence, like the history, the spiritual history of mankind will claim for sure that 20,000 years ago there were much greater spiritual beings on this planet than they are now. Of course, you are going to say, where are the telephone masts which they built, or where are the transatlantic boats which they built? Those were non-technical people. They didn't try to express themselves by building external technology. They tried to express themselves by living their lives in ways which were meaningful for them. And it was not meaningful for them to build a dream in this dream. It was not meaningful for them to invest energy into, as the Dalai Lama, the present Dalai Lama says, as building a house on a bridge. Life is a bridge as far as the soul is concerned, because if the soul spends 400 years in the afterlife and 80 years on in a physical life, then we are basically spending four or five times more time in the astral worlds than in the physical world. Therefore, our home is definitely not in the physical world, and our permanent place of stay is definitely not in the physical world. And the place where should we should invest our energy and the place where we should invest our enthusiasm is definitely not into physical things and physical accomplishments because those are not eternal. They do not last. They are, as the Buddhist philosophy calls them, transient or ephemeral. So investing energy and too much enthusiasm in things which are ephemeral is a complete waste of energy, is a complete waste of good soul, good enthusiasm. So, basically, we look at the history of yoga and we say if there were yogis 5,000 years ago, probably those yogis were bigger than the yogis which lived 100 years ago. No? So, how do we speak about the history of yoga? How do we speak about the evolution of yoga? How do we speak about the development of yoga? when actually the Kali Yuga becomes deeper and deeper in the last 6,000 years, and basically the human quality is debasing. Many of the incarnated spirits in this world are spirits with a heavier and heavier karma, spirits more and more loaded with materialism, skepticism, egoism, problems of all kinds. And then the yoga which is happening in the world reflects them because yoga has to be adapted for them. Yoga is a very interesting method because it's not based on a person. Buddhism is an imitation of Buddha. 
do what Buddha did. So all the Buddhists, in a certain way, they try to be like Buddha. They try to reach what Buddha reached. Christianity is an imitation of Jesus Christ. Try to be as perfect as Jesus Christ was. Live into the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Even in other religions, you know, in Islam, you try to live in the footprints or in the footsteps of the Prophet Muhammad, even if not personally, but he received a message from the Archangel Gabriel and he wrote down the Quran and you have to live according to that message, according to that text, which is filtered through the pen of the Prophet Muhammad. Now, when you look at the Jewish things, you know, most of the... Jewish religion is called mosaic religion because it was funded, it is uh, based eventually on the Ten Commandments which Moses received on Mount Sinai from God Himself. So again, it's based on a person. But when you look at yoga, yoga is not based on a person. Yoga is based on multiple traditions. Yoga is based on many centuries. Yoga is based on many texts. There are many directions of yoga. There is yoga which is Hindu and there is yoga which is Buddhist. No, Hinduism, a large part of Hinduism is based on Krishna. Krishna speaks in the Bhagavad Gita and in Mahabharata. And then there is Lord Rama speaking in the Ramayana even before Mahabharata. And basically 90% of the Hinduism is based on Lord Rama and Lord Krishna, which are both of them incarnations of the deity of the god called Vishnu. So basically, most of Hinduism is based on these two threads, Rama and Krishna, the two root legislators, the two root teachers. But with yoga, it's very interesting because you cannot say, how are we going to adapt the words of Jesus to the modern times? Jesus apparently was against any form of sexual perversion or sexual impurity at his time. But now in the 21st century, everything goes because we kind of adapted Christianity. No? Either you believe in the words of Jesus or you don't believe in the words of Jesus. Either you respect the words of Jesus or you don't respect the words of Jesus. And therefore, when you have these things based on a person, it's a personal model, It comes, it generates a lot of enthusiasm, and then as the centuries pass, that person is more and more distant in history, and Buddha is more distant than Jesus, Jesus is more distant than the Prophet Muhammad. Like The the more the centuries pass, the more people are like, yeah, we walk in the footsteps of somebody who lived 2,000 years ago. The world is not what it used to be 2,000 years ago. We need an update. The most fascinating thing, I think, for which I was enthusiastic to talk to you tonight about uh, this element from yoga, the history of yoga, is I think I find its history fascinating because it's a history which is not based on one person. It's not the teaching of a great, of a single one great spirit which came, gave some amazing teachings, and humanity was left with a message, well, follow these teachings, stay in the footsteps of these teachings. The teachings of yoga have adapted. The styles of yoga have changed. Even the texts of yoga became updated 
with the passing of time. And that's why yoga is a fascinating phenomenon. Because in the end, if you want to look at it from a spiritual standpoint, no, we can look at yoga like a method of healing, a sort of natural healing, which contains in it even things which are not directly from yoga. Like nowadays, we use yoga, at least 25% of what we use in yoga is about healing. It's a method of healing. But it uses, we use in yoga even macrobiotic diet. And the microbiotic diet is not from yoga. It doesn't exist in any text from India or Tibet. And thus, when we say that we use yoga as many things, but if we look at it from the spiritual standpoint, where it apparently started, yoga is a method of salvation. It's a method to save your soul. Basically, you save your soul if you follow the words of Jesus. But you can also save your soul if you follow the method of yoga. Of course, the fundamentalistic Christians or the fundamentalistic Muslims or the fundamentalistic whoever will not agree with what I say now. They will say, if you follow Jesus, you reach salvation. If you follow Muhammad, you go to hell. If you follow yoga, you go to hell. Only Jesus exists in this world. That's how the fundamentalists think in a fanatic and exclusive way. Yoga is, after all, from the standpoint of the people who created it, is a method of salvation. The name itself is a witness to it, because yoga is called union. Yoga means union. Yeah? And the term appears in medieval Christian culture as well, completely isolated from India. It's called unio mystica, that by prayer you obtain a state of consciousness, a sort of a bhakti yoga type of samadhi, which they called Unio Mystica, mystical union, a, f- a state of ecstasy, of trance, in which your heart and your soul is united with the heart and with the soul of God. And you are like embraced by God, you are in ecstasy, you stay for hours or minutes or whatever, or days in that state, and basically you know that you have come back home. You know that you have reunited with God. You know that you are back in the kingdom of heaven, you know that your soul belongs to God, is with God, and you know that you are saved. You know that you are not going to be lost in the outer darkness, you know that you don't go to hell, you, don't, you know that you don't disappear in the space and time, hyper-death or whatever you want to call that utter disappearance from all the lines of time and space, you know that you have reached eternity, the condition of what the Christians would call eternal life, and what uh, the yogis would call liberation, freedom, mukti, moksha, or uh, other names which are given to it. Enlightenment, of course, but that's more a Buddhist name. So, yoga, for the yogis, it was a method of salvation. Even 300 years before Christ, when the philosophers which are accompanying the court of Alexander the Great reached India, in the western part of India, which is today Pakistan, they discovered the first yogis. They were here and there, around some villages, one, two yogis living in a hut. And of course, these were very important for the philosophers, because these were the local philosophers. These were the people who were carrying the... and they spoke with them. 
And the Greeks were brilliant in this way because they understood immediately that these people were like the, the, the Greek philosophers were with nothing superior to them. Remember, Alexander the Great had been educated about Aristoteles. So we are talking about the golden age of Greek philosophy and uh, everything. No? And when they encountered the yogis, they didn't call the yogis yogis because that's a Sanskrit name and they didn't speak Sanskrit. They called them gymnosophists. They were philosophists who did gymnastics. So we know for sure that there was Hatha Yoga even before the great texts and teachers in yoga. Patanjali, who lived 300 years later, <coughs> around the time of Jesus, maybe 100 years later than Jesus even, Patanjali doesn't speak almost at all about Hatha Yoga. Patanjali doesn't describe actually working with the physical body. Exception made the definition that the posture of the body does matter, it's a part of yoga, and that with the posture of the body you can do some things, and that the posture of the body should be stable, relaxed, comfortable, whatever he wants to say about it. But he does not describe halasana, he does not describe even padmasana, he doesn't describe anything, he doesn't teach anything, and he, there is no witness of the fact that around the time of Patanjali or around the ashram or around the teachers of or pupils of Patanjali, any one of them taught Hatha Yoga. Hatha Yoga appears visible in the history of India only around the 5th, 6th, 7th century AD together with Guru Matsyendra and his disciple Guru Goraksha, the Nath Yogis, the first of the Nath Yogis from the Nath Sampradaya, Natha Sampradaya school. And thus... But then why did the Greeks call them 300 years, 350 years before that? Why did the Greeks call them gymnosophists? Like they could have called them philosophy, Indian philosophers. But they called them gymnosophists. Like philosophists, philosophers that did gymnastics. Which means gymnastics was already yoga. Postures, strange postures, were already a very important part of what they were doing. Even 350 years before Patanjali. And thus, what I'm trying to say with this is, we don't even know the roots of everything. Because in India, they didn't bother writing chronicles. For example, the Chinese always wrote down detailed historical chronicles. Many of them were burned, destroyed, because some schizophrenic emperors wanted to destroy the recorded history and to pretend that the civilization in China started with them. But that's uh, some that those are acts of vandalism. The chronicles existed. But in India, they didn't even bother to create chronicles. They didn't make chronicles. They let history be unwritten and unclear in this way because they realized that it's here and now. It's a constant flow of grace. How does yoga manifest now? No, you guys who are listening to these things and who are trying to practice something for yourselves, you are trying to practice yoga in the 21st century. In the 21st century, of course, it's important to know what Patanjali said 21st centuries ago, but it's strictly orientative because the world is not the same. If you go in the footsteps of Jesus, you always have to ask yourself, what would Jesus think about this today? What would Jesus do? But if you do yoga, you don't have to think about what would Patanjali think. Because Patanjali does not pretend to be a perennial source in history. 
Patanjali simply told you what was done 2000 years ago and nowadays when you ask Shivananda, when you ask Yogananda, when you ask Aurobindo and the likes of them, there you find out what the yogis did in the 20th century. Not to mention that now we are in the 21st century and when Shivananda died, they didn't have television, they didn't have internet, they didn't have smartphones, they didn't have a million things that we have today. They hadn't seen the Beatleses and the hippies and the Tibetans coming to the West and, uh, you know, running away from the Chinese and all that. So things have changed a lot in just the last 60 years compared to what Shivananda tells us or what Paramahamsa Yogananda tells us. Not to mention that Ramakrishna was telling us things 150 years ago. And that's a long, long time in the evolution of mankind. So I was very thrilled actually to think a little bit, to contemplate a little bit this history of yoga. Because it has some paradoxes. It's a history of yoga which addresses to souls which are more and more inferior. So it's a yoga which addresses more and more to monkeys. And without any disrespect, we are the monkeys. Yeah, we are speaking about the pygmies of Kali Yuga as compared to the giants, to the spiritual giants which are living at some times. Although we can be more educated, I understand what a laptop contains or what a computer works like. And Shivananda didn't have a clue and Patanjali didn't even know what electricity was. But there were other things very, very developed in those people in those days. So it's very thrilling to see how yoga has evolved at the same time devolving. How the yoga evolving in time, it actually addresses concerns which are lower and lower and how some of these ideas in yoga have developed. It's very, it's very beautiful actually because it's a mirror of the evolution of mankind. When we study the first roots of yoga, the first roots where the word yoga is mentioned, they are somewhere in the Vedic texts. And the Vedic texts illustrate a spirituality which is so old that we don't understand it. We have a project sometimes here to maybe watch again the the westernized version of the Mahabharata, the Peter Brooks Mahabharata, which is a five hour and a half long movie. It's true, there is an Indian series called Mahabharata, which is uh, terrible to watch because it has like 800 episodes and uh, of 20 minutes each. So we're talking about thousands of hours to watch in a very, very slow way, in a very, very... So when even when you watch the Mahabharata, put into stage by a modern uh, playwright, by Peter Brooks, with a modern spirit, dynamic, with uh, all the conquests of the modern culture, like Peter Brooks did this Mahabharata in the 1960s, 70s, he put it on stage, and then it was filmed as a movie. Uh, You can see very clearly, those people think, like nobody in your city, or nobody in your village, has been thinking for the last 100 years. 
Like those people think when you hear Karna and Duryodhana and Yudhishthira and Krishna himself and other people speaking and saying what they have to say and propagating the great truths, it's like, where are these people born? When are they born? I've never heard anything like this. It's like these people come from another planet because the earth 4,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago when the action of the Mahabharata is supposed to have happened, they are from another planet. It was a different planet that we're talking about. So spirituality, you know, people were searching for a way, a path to salvation. How to save my soul? It's known. Not everybody does. It's a thing in mankind. Now, Krishna, in that old days, tells to Arjuna, Oh, Arjuna, out of a thousand people, only one is looking to save their soul, to do something for their soul. The problem existed 4,000 years ago. In a village, there were a thousand people, and 999 of those people, they were hypnotized by Maya. And somehow they believed that uh, how they look physically, how much money they have, the comfort, the glory, the name, the fame, all sorts of other factors, they matter. And therefore people became slaves to all these things. I, most of the people that I have known in my life who are not yogis, are people who are slaves to those things which I just said before. They are slaves of Maya. I have, you know, you are never really able to understand how some people click to these spiritual truths and they shake their head and they say, yeah, that's how I also feel. That's how I also am. And some other people look and, you know, if they want to be polite, they don't uh, give you the finger, you know, they don't disrespect. They kind of look... But you see in their eyes that they are just waiting for you to finish because for them it's just a stupid raving because they are on another page. No, they, they think in a different way. So it is true that this problem existed, that only this is the curse of this planet. I would love to see a planet where out of a thousand people, 500 of them they are fanatics of spirituality. And the other 500, they don't understand what's wrong with the other 500. And there is a sort of a two castes in the society. The fanatics who want to stand on their head and repeat mantras, and the ones which have to buy land, build buildings, dig wells, make a lot of children, have a lot of kind of, hey, listen to me, now I, who am an important person in your society here, I'm speaking, listen to me. And some are giving him the finger and some not. You know, like, I would like to see a society where people are like 50-50. 50% spiritual and 50% interested in secular issues. No? But to be born in a planet where one person in a thousand is like Ramakrishna and the other 999, they kill each other like Abel killed Cain or whatever, you know. Like the first two brothers from the Bible, the sons of Adam, already they were envying the guts of each other and one of them killed the other, if I remember correctly. Abel killed the one called Cain, you know. It's like... Or the other way around, it doesn't matter, you know. One of them killed the other. 
The question is, what the fuck is this humanity in which we are born? By which mistake did I come to this planet? I don't want to live on the planet where Abel kills Cain or Cain kills Abel for a piece of land, for whatever, that one had more sheep than the other, or God knows whatever the reason was. Like, I'm born in the wrong place. I don't belong on this planet. I don't want to be mixed with such people. No, these people are, shouldn't be in my village. But alas, it is. One person is like Shivananda, and 999 people are like Abel, ready to kill Cain, or Cain, ready to kill Abel. Doesn't matter who killed who. You know? Therefore, what I'm trying to say here is spirituality, at least in the age which we know, in the last 5,000 years, 6,000 years, where there are recorded things, all the rest is just shadows, shadows. You know? Like there is a story that there existed a civilization called Atlantis. And when we know about the glorious Atlantis, it was decadent and fucked up already. So it was evil. Well, we know about that. The Roman Empire was evil. The whatever... The British Empire was evil. Every empire eventually becomes evil. You know, it's like, what are we talking about? So, um, like, we don't know to be told about how Atlantis became evil, because we see it, you know, the American terrorism, state terror, government terrorism is evil. There's a lot of evil, and the Russian power empire is evil. You know, it's like, wherever you look at power, you find a lot of evil. So, There is a rumor about Atlantis, which disappeared 13,000 years ago because of misuse, karma, extreme imbalances generated, and so on. But honestly, Atlantis is still a big mystery. Nobody has found it physically, the bricks of the buildings from Atlantis. So there is a lot of theories, a lot of forbidden archaeology, a lot of mysteries that Atlantis is in the triumph. Triangle of Bermuda and the Bermuda Triangle, or that Atlantis is under Antarctica, is under the polar caps of Antarctica, or whatever. There are lots of theories, you know, and we don't really know what's true and what's not true. Scientists today, the materialistic scientists, the square scientists, they prefer to believe that Atlantis is just a myth and it has never existed. It's just invented by the Greek historians and philosophers. God know for which God knows for which reason. So, we know about what is accepted academically, starting with the Zoroastrians and Babylonians and Sumerians and the ancient India, the Vedic India and ancient China and everything. We know a history which is five, six thousand, six thousand years old maximum. And therefore, if it's six thousand years old, it's all of it after the flood of Noah. The flood of Noah was in the Bible, calculated like 6,000 years ago. And the flood of Noah, for the metaphysicians, is the start of Kali Yuga. It's the end of Dvapara Yuga and the start of the last Yuga in the cycle, the Kali Yuga, which is supposed to last 6,400 years approximately. That's why we know that if Kali Yuga started at the flood of Noah or around there, Kali Yuga is about to end. If it's about to end in 10 years, or in 400 years, this makes a huge difference for me as a person, because if it's in 10 years, I might catch that end, that grand finale, in my physical body. 
if it's in 400 years, I might be in my astral body, I might be out of this planet, or I might be incarnated again in another body, in another circumstance, and so on, and then catch it there in that way. I'm telling you all this story because I want you to understand that we know a very limited part of the history of the planet Earth, and then in this part of the planet Earth, it's the Iron Age. It's the worst. And that simply goes by saying that spirituality is at its lowest. That's how these ages are defined. Satya Yuga is a time of humanity where people are five meters tall. They live a thousand years of age. And if they close their eyes, they go in Samadhi automatically. So we are talking about a hundred thousand giants who are in Samadhi who are enlightened, all of them, and they live an enlightened life. And in Kali Yuga, we talk about 8 billion people, who are most of them baboons, you know, and they don't believe in Jesus. If they would catch Jesus the second time, Jesus would not resist three years. Imagine Jesus going to the United States and started speaking against all the stupid things which the Americans do today, you know, speaking against uh, sexual dysfunctions or other things. You know, the, the activists in America, they would murder him in six months. That man would not resist six months. You know? So basically, we live in times which are really bitter nowadays. And uh, what I'm trying to say here is like this. Um, in this modern time, spirituality is very thin. It's very underrepresented. The great masters, they try to keep it alive. As we can see when we look at the millions of people who go in pilgrimage to Vatican or to Mecca or to the Kumbha Mela and so on, people, even when they are materialistic and they are not ready, I don't know, to give up meat in their diet or to do some things which are specific, no, like efforts, practical efforts. Even when people are not capable of doing that, they still want some religion. They go by the millions to Vatican, to Mecca, to Kum. But why do you go by the millions there if you are not ready to become vegetarian or to do something, to make an effort to suppress your violence, to become non-violent, to do something of the kind? I am being given a sign from here that there is a technical minor issue of changing a battery. So please bear with me. We'll interrupt one minute the sound. And then I'll be back continuing in the same trend. So let us take a one, two minutes break.
And so I'm back. Technical problem solved for now. And therefore, when we look at the history of yoga, in this Kali Yuga, in the Vedic culture, which was a very privileged culture because it was one of the first spiritual cultures of the mankind in this Yuga. Again, we don't know what spirituality they had in Atlantis, not in the final days of Atlantis, but let's say 2,000 years before that, like 15,000 years ago. We have no information about these things. We can only speculate, and the people who are clairvoyant, they can try to look in Akasha to see if they find recordings, images from those days, from uh, those times of uh, history. But when we look at what is known, like we have some historical sources that can guide us, and we know that we are not raving completely. No, there is a continent which supposedly exists much before Atlantis, like we're talking now about millions of years ago. Maybe it disappeared at the time when that comet hit the Earth in the Gulf of Mexico 65 million years ago, and it killed the dinosaurs, and it changed the climate of the planet violently. It seems that there has been at least one such major cataclysm, if not several, in the history of this planet. And then it's possible that major geological things happen, which we don't have a clue. There is a witness in forbidden archaeology about a continent which is called Lemuria. And it comes from the monkeys, which are called Lemurians. Because there are Lemurian monkeys in South America, in Indo, in Southeast Asia, in Polynesia, in, West, in Eastern Africa, and in Northern Australia. But they couldn't have crossed from one place to another. If the Lemurians have appeared according to Darwinistic things, as a mutation, as a species which appeared at some time, how comes that they are on five different continents separated by thousands of years, thousands of kilometers of water? How could the Lemurians have migrated from one continent to another to go in? They couldn't. Only if there was a landmass which united Eastern Africa with the western part of South America. That means the whole Pacific Ocean. Such a huge continent was called Lemuria because it's the only biological explanation why there are identical DNA monkeys in two sides of the Pacific Ocean, in the east and in the west. Do we know something about Lemuria? Were there human beings also in Lemuria? Did the human beings live together with the dinosaurs at any time of the history? Or the dinosaurs disappeared 65 million years ago and the human beings appeared 5 million years ago and then there was no historical connection whatsoever? No? Then why the human beings are obsessed with dinosaurs and in the subconscious mind of the human being there exist some strange things in the collective subconscious mind about the great reptiles which are called dragons and all sorts of things like that. And thus, these are mysteries. That's why I don't want to go tonight into the mystery. It's very beautiful to study the mysteries because there are some mysteries like this which are very reasonable. I'm not talking about the fat that fat Elvis Presley, fat junkie Elvis Presley is still alive. Fuck Elvis Presley. You know, he was a loser. You know, I don't, I don't like him, although he was a very pretty man, but that's all you can say about him. Otherwise, he was a total loser. 
No, I don't care if Elvis Presley is alive or not, and I don't care about those ridiculous conspiracy theories which are meant to serve people's ego and preference. Soon you are going to hear that Michael Jackson is still alive, living in Antarctica or some hiding in Antarctica or something. No, this are, this is nonsense. No, I'm not going there. But there are very, very beautiful mysteries like this mystery of Lemuria. Any scientist is challenged to find out how these monkeys came on five continents you know, from five different places, and they are identical in DNA, but they are not connected by a landmass with each other. How were they connected? How did they appear? And when was the first Lemurian born and walked the face of the earth and all that? I'm not going there. I'm staying in the last 6,000 years. There was a flood of Noah or there was not a flood of Noah. There is a BBC documentary 30 years old, which gives even photos that the Ark of Noah's is encased in a glacier on a mountain between Armenia, Iraq, and uh, whatever they call it today, this land of in the north of Iraq, Turkey, Iraq, there where the Kurds are, Kurdistan or whatever. You know? And thus, I'm, I'm simply, uh, and nobody goes to investigate. You know, There is no crazy explorer who goes there to go and steal a piece of wood from there and bring it back to a laboratory in Europe and analyze it with carbon with radioactive carbon or something to see if it's a piece of wood which is 6,000 years old or 6,400 years old or whatever you know so there are many mysteries and many of them are beautiful but fact is that starting with the old civilizations the old Vedic civilization the Zoroastrians of Persia the Babylonians uh, with their cuneiform writing and all those. The Egyptians, the mysterious Egyptian civilization, which seems to be older than 6,000 years, because some of the artifacts in Egypt, they seem to be definitely older than 6,000 years. Some of them could be 10, 11, 12,000 years to the borderline of the Atlantis history. In those days... There were spiritual people. Even if they were one in a thousand, there were spiritual people. And these spiritual people, they stood away from their village and they said, go ahead, get yourself as much cattle and houses and land as possible. Fight who will be the mayor, who will be the chieftain in your village. See if I care. I'm going out in the desert or in the jungle or in the mountains. And I'm trying to find out, first of all, who am I? Why am I here? Because your lifestyle doesn't satisfy me. It's, it's not what I want. There is no philosophy to your lifestyle. There is no contemplation. There is no compassion. There is no oneness. There is no integration. There is no mystery. There is no curiosity. There is no, like, you know, it's all about greed and satisfying your instincts and whose bigger power games, you know, Muladhara, Svadhisthana, Manipura, but above that, nothing, nothing. No, baboons, baboons, you know, human beings living in the lower chakras. And therefore, these spiritual people, they tried to find a way to salvation. Maybe some of them were high spirits incarnated. Maybe some of them were already born with clairvoyance, with an open third eye, with something. And these people put together the bases 
of all the spirituality which we have seen on this planet in the last 6,000 years. In the beginning, this spirituality was more clumsy. Like when you look at the, I don't know, texts from the old Zoroastrian religion or from the Babylonians or others, even the Egyptian book of the dead and others, you find texts which are naive, primitive, convoluted. And when you look in India, you find the Vedas. And the Vedas are just endless collections of hymns, of religious hymns, dedicated to some old deities, like Aditi, Varuna, all sorts of deities which today are not even worshipped anymore. So it's like the the Vedas have died, practically speaking. And therefore we see constantly that people have tried to find a way to salvation. In India, one of the most outstanding things of this was the fact that they knew pretty early that your physical body can help you. If you stand on your head, or if you don't stand on your head, that will make a difference for your salvation. And this is why we got the gymnosophists. The early history of yoga is therefore very fuzzy, very foggy. Nobody bothered to write that history of yoga. It is said in the Hindu Sanatana Dharma that yoga in Hinduism, the Hindu yoga, because the Buddhist yoga appeared only after Buddha. There couldn't have been Buddhist yoga before Buddha lived. No, so it was a yoga, yogis who crossed on the camp of Buddha and they did yoga in the name of Buddha, in the style of Buddha. But the original yoga, which was Hindu, which is mentioned in the old texts, was apparently created by the rishis. The rishis are a mysterious group of seven people, especially there are seven rishis, there are more, but the ones which did yoga are Sapta Rishi, called the seven rishis. And the seven rishis practiced yoga. They were having a very different style. They were family men, they were married, some of them had children. They were not practicing this intense yoga in caves, in mountains, the ascetic extreme forms of yoga, these have appeared only later in history. As the oldest scholarly admitted proof of yoga, because again the Vedas are evaluated differently in scholarship as how old they are, although they are supposed to be 6,000 years old or more, the Vedas, I'm sorry, the first archaeological evidence comes from India, from a city which is in today Pakistan, called Mohenjo-Daro. And in Mohenjo-Daro, they found some ceramics, some tiles of ceramic, you know, like decorations to put on the wall. And one of them represents Shiva. It represents Shiva with horns, like the Viking horns, like a horned creature, like having a helmet with horns. This is referring to Nandi, the bull, the animal of Shiva and all that. And Shiva is performing if I remember correctly, a Badrasana. He's sitting in Badrasana. So there you see for the first time a human being who is actually a god, who does a peculiar position of the body, and this has a religious value. This is a spiritual thing. So, was there yoga before? Most probably, because if people sculpted that in ceramic in Mohenjo-Daro, there must have been something much older. 
Where are the origins of this? The German scholars before the Second World War, starting with Max Heindel and a few others, um, uh, I'm sorry, it's not Max Heindel. Max Heindel is a famous astrologist. Uh, It's Max Müller, the Sanskritologist. They said that actually the migration of the Aryan people, the ones who invaded India from north and who are more in the north of India than in the south of India, and politically incorrect, it means those with light skin from India, they were actually originally coming from the Schwarzwald, from the Black Forest in Germany. The, if you, there are theories, there are PhDs, there are whole books written on this, where they demonstrate that the emigration of Rama started from Central Europe. There are Romanian Sanskritologists which found places of villages and other things which are all of them Sanskrit and they mean something, especially in Transylvania and not only in Transylvania. So somewhere in Eastern Europe to the Black Forest in Germany, somewhere in that place, apparently Rama, Lord Rama, was European. And they walked 10,000 kilometers to India for some variety of reasons. Until today, nobody understands if there was a minor ice age coming or something. They migrated and Rama had a brother called Balarama. And Rama and Balarama, basically, he was called sometimes Lakshman. Lakshman and Rama, they went one of them north of the Black Sea and one of them south of the Black Sea through today's Turkey. And they met somewhere in Pakistan, Afghanistan, whatever. They crossed the mountains and then they found the fertile plains of India. And that's where they established themselves in the valley of the Indus, which today is in Pakistan and in the valley of the Ganga, which is today in India. So, uh, if that is the case, then people were practicing yoga at the time of Rama, because Rama is a sort of a legendary figure for yogis, and that was coming from Europe. There are Scandinavian symbols, which are very old, which show people in Chakrasana, no, I've, there was a famous woman in Denmark called Guni Martin, who was a very good spiritualist, a very good category spiritualist, mostly focused on the methods of Gurdjieff. And she was digging up a lot of these things. And she published it in many of her brochures. And it was on the logo of her school no? that people were, um, there were such things even in Scandinavia. Today, when we look in Thailand, we see that many of the pictures of the images from Thai massage, which exist in the Wat Po temple in Bangkok, they are actually considered to be the rishis, but the rishis were in India, not in Thailand. It doesn't matter. It's a sort of a cross-border thing, and they are practicing asanas. There are approximately 20-something statues of rishis practicing some of the asanas from Hatha Yoga in the Wat Po temple in Bangkok, in the garden. You know, they are not the original statues. The original statues are in the National Museum. But there they are copies, you know, which show that even, but okay, with the Thais, you'd say it's Indochina. There was migration here. There is Buddhism. There is a Hindu community, whatever, you know. So it's like, uh, it's, but what about Scandinavia? In the old, old days, what would images related with yoga? Why do the Scandinavians have the symbol of the swastika, which is an obsessive symbol in India? 
In India, when you see swastikas everywhere, nobody gets upset because they know that they are not neo-Nazis. They know that it's the swastika is a thousands of years old symbol in India and it predates Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich and it has no racistic or uh, other Nazi meanings. On the contrary, it has very beneficial and harmonious and uh, prosperity meanings. And But why do you find them in the old Scandinavia? Why do you find them? Like, there is a mysterious old, old history which is symbolically referred in the migration of Rama and Lakshman, his brother, and together with them all the Vedic culture moved from Europe to India. And then India suddenly, 6,000, 5,000, 4,000 years ago, starts shining. The gravity center moves from Europe if it was there ever, if it's not, this is another conspiracy theory, and it moves to India. And then India becomes amazing. Have you ever thought how many great religions came from India? Jesus is supposed to have visited India. A lot of influences in the Islam, they come from India. Buddhism is born in India. Hinduism in several forms is born in India. Tibetan Buddhism as a separate form is born more or less across because it's coming from Padmasambhava who was from India, who was of Indian origin. Jainism is born in India. Sikhism is born in India. Okay, Zoroastrianism lives in India but it's not born in India. And I'm sure I'm missing a few good examples still. No? Like India has been a powerhouse that means the people, the ancestors of the people from India, they were the core. These were core spirits, which apparently moved from Europe, either it's the Black Forest or it's Transylvania or whichever part in between those two, no? moved from Europe, and those people were the spiritual core, the people who had the spine, the people who had the verticality. And those people brought yoga with them. But the yoga which they brought, when you see what were the rishis doing, what is written in the Vedas, there must have been some gymnastics, at least sit in Badrasana, sit in Padmasana, sit in this, but there is still very little emphasis on the physical body. Very little. We don't know how the Greek philosophers found some which were gymnosophists. Because the texts, don't follow. The texts are mentioning very little physical culture. And thus, yoga was very much of the type of bhakti yoga, karma yoga, jnana yoga, and raja yoga. These were the four original yogas, and none of them is very physical, except karma yoga, which is, can be a yoga of social activism, the yoga of doing some social good action. So, when we read about yoga first time, and about the first masters, those were the rishis. But the yoga which the rishis preached, is a yoga which most people today would not understand. Ramakrishna, by going in samadhi and doing samyama, could understand the rishis. But 
modern beginners, they would get nothing from the rishis and from the Vedas, and they would need to come closer to our days. In Bhagavad Gita, which is a fragment of Mahabharata, and the actions from Mahabharata allegedly happened 4,500 years ago, much after Rama came to India, so it's the next stage, it's after a thousand years later, a thousand five hundred years later, there Krishna describes Jnana Yoga, a bit of Bhakti Yoga, not too much, and very much Karma Yoga. And then again, there is not much physicality. There Krishna describes that you sit cross-legged, but he doesn't mention if it's Siddhasana, Padmasana, Svastikasana, or which of the cross-legged positions is. You focus on Ajna Chakra, all the energy is coming here, and then it's good for various things. It's good for the art of dying, and it's good for meditation and other such things. When he puts Arjuna in Samadhi, Krishna touches him on the forehead, so basically it's, some, it's a samadhi induced through Ajna Chakra, via Ajna Chakra. And then, so that yoga is still, when you read Bhagavad Gita, you can understand Krishna. But it's still, he doesn't speak about chakras, nadis, the five bodies, resonance, positive emotions, negative emotions. He's, very, he's transcending the whole thing very, very much. And thus, we don't find sort of a technical references to yoga, just bits and pieces here and there. Then we hear at the time of Alexander the Great about gymnosophists. And finally, 2000 years ago, the first treatise of yoga, which is specific of yoga, besides the Bhagavad Gita, which is older, is being written. And this treatise of yoga is the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. In a certain way, this shows a certain greatness of Patanjali, because it must have taken a huge effort of materialization to put yoga on paper. Yoga was not on paper until 2000 years ago. And just to be able to write some sentences which will be readable after 2,000 years and still mean something, like to be able to put your thoughts into words, this is a great thing. It shows a great creativity and a great power of manifestation. So Patanjali was a door opener. He was a landmark. He was a milestone because he managed to bring yoga so that you can put it on a paper and give it to somebody to read. You can pass yoga through a piece of paper already. And that was a huge conquest, but on the other hand, it meant a materialization of yoga. Like when yoga is only in the mind, and my mind communicates with your mind, we can transmit ideas, which are very vast. In the moment when we limit ourselves to some Sanskrit words, in that moment we kind of anchored yoga, we incarnated yoga on a piece of paper, and then yoga becomes a little bit more stiff. Before Patanjali, of course we had Buddha, and we cannot overlook Buddha simply because he comes from India. 
he got enlightened in India, in Bodh Gaya. And because of this, he had to influence the Indian environment. For example, many texts of medieval yoga, they speak about and they say, this is the road to nirvana. When they speak about some yoga technology, they say, this is the initiation which leads you to nirvana. There is even a tantric text, which is called Maha Nirvana Tantra. But nirvana is a purely Buddhist. It doesn't exist in Krishna, in the Bhagavad Gita. It doesn't exist in any of these concepts. It's purely a Buddhist concept. So as soon as Buddha lived, because he became famous, and the yogis looked at Buddha and they said, well, we like that guy or we don't like that guy, but he's very big spiritually. He has made it. So maybe he expresses a point of view, not in the way in which we would like to have it expressed, but we cannot contest his greatness. And look, some of his disciples also reach nirvana. So it's a lineage there, and it's a powerful lineage which has grace to it, because Buddhist disciple, after Buddhist disciple, after Buddhist disciple, they reach nirvana. They reach enlightenment. And therefore, the yogis got inspired by Buddha. Although the yogis were Hindu, And Buddha was a little bit anti-Hindu. But the yogis were neither Hindu nor not Hindu. The yogis were in search of the enlightenment. And if enlightenment was with Buddha, they had to defer and simply say, well, we like or we don't like, that guy is the real deal. This shows that there are many ways, that there are many paths. And that's why the yoga texts carry a lot of Buddhist terminology. And in this age, Patanjali finally is the first yogi who moves his ass. We can understand from this that many of the yogis until that time, they almost had a... I I cannot believe that the yogis from 6,000 years ago until 2,000 years ago, they were all of them airheads. All of them were completely, not one of them picked up a papyrus and wrote 10 words about yoga. Not one of them wrote 100 words about yoga. Like, look, I'm sitting here in the Himalaya since 30 years, and I would like to write something for my disciples so that they know why I stayed here 40 years in the Himalaya. What was my quest? I'm looking for this, I'm doing this, I'm looking for that, I recommend this. Nobody did. Nobody did. And therefore, I can admit that half of them were up there in Samadhi and kind of flipped freaks, airheads, you know. And, but I would admit that some of them were probably earthbound people. Many great yogis in the 20th century, they have been astrologically earth signs, you know, like really earthbound people. And I I wouldn't believe that none of those earthbound people 3,000 years ago didn't find out a little time to write, to carve in stone, to, to do something, to leave a mark. So they probably didn't want, there was probably an unwritten law among the yogis that yoga should be transmitted orally only from teacher to disciple. People were learning, but they were not supposed to spend their time writing it down because it will reach to people who don't deserve it, who will not understand it, who will misinterpret it, 
and therefore it's not going to give results, positive results anyway. Patanjali broke that seal. Exception made of the Bhagavad Gita, which is supposed to describe events older than Patanjali. Patanjali is the number one. And Patanjali, his text, I have commented it already extensively in satsangs a few years ago, Patanjali has commented on Raja Yoga, the yoga of the mind, a very potent form of yoga, the yoga of the third eye. The advice of Patanjali in terms of Raja Yoga is valid until today. If today you wish to practice Raja Yoga, 50% of your inspiration is coming from Patanjali himself. And the other 50% are coming from different teachings of uh, Ramakrishna, Shivananda, Aurobindo, Satyananda, you know. But basically, it's coming from there. Patanjali was the one who broke the ice and put yoga on paper. And Patanjali is a sort of a revival after Buddha. The Hindus didn't like Buddha. That's why Buddhism went out of India and it went to Bhutan, it went to whatever. It went to Myanmar, it went to Southeast Asia, it went to Sri Lanka, but not so much in India. Because Buddha was destroying all the social regulations by destroying the caste system, (coughs) by destroying the Vedic rituals, such as marriage, sacred, thread, all that. And the Hindus could not live with that. In a certain way, Buddha was a dreamer and an idealist. And he was trying to describe a society where people are free from all. So people are not free. People were baboons and people needed a lot of rituals and regulations and things for the daily life. Because 999 people out of a thousand, they were actually not doing yoga. They were actually not doing meditation. And they needed just some social religion, some religion which applies in society, not some religion which applies in an ashram, in a bungalow, in a cave. Some religion by which you play some religious games. You go to Kumbha Mela once every 12 years, and you say if you take a dip in the Ganges, all your sins for the last 1,000 incarnations are washed away. But then look at India, what a miserable country was and still is. Those people are bathing in the Ganges every 12 years for 200 years at least since Shankaracharya, you know. Why aren't their karmas washed completely and why isn't India the new Jerusalem? Why isn't India the kingdom of heaven on earth? How can it be so miserable that husbands, when they get bored with their wives, They wrap them in plastic and cellophane. They sprinkle them with gasoline and they set them on fire. How can India be a country where people make x-rays to their children and if it's a girl, they perform an abortion because they want a boy? You know, it's like, where, where do you see the sins of a thousand lifetimes washed? This is what religion is in the society. A bunch of superstitions and a bunch of beliefs out of which some is true and the rest is just Walt Disney. The rest is just a lot of colorful rituals and for people not to get bored. 
If you go to Kumbamela, it, you prepare three months before and you tell stories about it three months after. Six months of your life are busy with the Kumbamela, you know. It's like it keeps you busy. No, it's, it's, you know, when Nero said, what do you need to rule people in Rome? Nero, the dictator of Rome who set Rome on fire, he said in Latin, panem et circenses, circenses, you know, which means bread and circus. That's what people need, bread and circus. Religion is very much circus. No? If people have bread, enough food so that they don't starve, and then you give them some religious thing, go to Mecca and walk around that stone seven times. Five million people, you can see them from satellite. It's wow. I am a Hajj. I have been to Mecca. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad has given me his grave. You want to believe this, believe this. It can't be harmful to believe some positive things like this. But how true it is, and how much the karma of people has been cancelled or this, you can look, you know, facts are facts. You look at the facts and you see the karma of India has not been washed because gazillions of people have taken bath in the Ganges. They only believe that. But the karma is not can. So Buddha was this kind who told them, man, you suck. Your religion is just a... They didn't like that. People preferred to live in that illusion in that dream, and then they made Buddhism go out of India by simply ignoring it, by simply... And then the Hindus were in search of a soul. Like, let's, what do we fill up the gap? Before Buddha, we had all these Vedic rituals and so on, but Buddha spat on them and told us how stupid they are. So they had to find the new Hinduism. So the new Hinduism is coming, and yoga is part of it. Patanjali is a sort of uh, yoga strikes back. Hinduism strikes back after Buddha. And therefore, it's not only Patanjali. Together with Patanjali, and in the years after, they came, this is the, what is called classical yoga, there come some very important trends. And one of the trends which is very powerful and it culminates in the 7th century is Vedanta. Vedanta is something which gets inspired, I'm sure, by Christianity and Buddhism. And it sees that people in Christianity, and especially in Buddhism, they try to be celibate. They try to conserve their sexual energy. Like when you do spirituality, you do it together with diet, sexual discipline, this, that. And then they say, hey, we cannot be left behind. We, we look primitive if we don't. And therefore, they start introducing very ascetic forms of yoga, very tough forms of yoga, where you go in a cave, you go in an ashram, you go in the mountains, you don't eat, you are strictly vegetarian, you do this, you do that, you practice brahmacharya very strictly, and this is the new fashion. And one direction is Vedantic yoga, which becomes full-on with Gaudapada, and especially with Adi Shankaracharya in the 7th, 8th century. In this line, that's the centuries when there appeared the Upanishads. Especially the famous, there are seven of them, Upanishads of Yoga. There are seven Upanishadic texts which mention chakras, meditation, jivatman, the mantra hamsa, the different things. These are Upanishads. So the Upanishads are 
especially the Upanishads of Yoga, they are part of the Vedantic trend. And Vedanta is uh, brilliant. Exception made of Kashmiri Shaivism, in my opinion, Vedanta is one of the highest things which, yoga, which India and Yoga has ever produced. For example, even, even Ramakrishna, who was a great arbiter of Yoga, who was a great enlightened spirit, even Ramakrishna proclaims that for him, Vedanta was the highest teaching which he had received from his gurus. And he is very strongly advocating it. And his disciple, Swami Vivekananda, the great Vivekananda of India, 120 years ago or more, he is again advocating Vedanta big time. He all the time speaks in a very praise-worthy way about Vedanta. Together with Vedanta, in India there appears another trend, and that's sort of the counterpart. This is the Tantric path, and the Tantric path manifests, first of all, on the mysticism of the body, that your body is the universe, that your chakras reflect God, that God is in your chakras under the form of Vishnu, Rudra, Ishvara, and all that, that your body, the different locations in your body accumulate privileged energies, that by working with those energies, you can enlighten your spirit. So this materializes beautifully in the 6th century and a bit later in the 7th, so about the same time, a bit early, 100 years earlier than Shankaracharya, with the famous two gurus, Matsyendra, called Matsyendra Nat, and Goraksha Nat. These people are the ones from whom their results the Hatha Yoga Pradipika and all these traditions, all these texts, Hatha Yoga Pradipika, Shiva, Samhita, Geranda, Samhita, Goraksha, Sataka, they are all of them coming from this lineage. And this is the mother of Hatha Yoga. Whatever Hatha Yoga existed before, we know it existed because they were called gymnosophists. And because there is a 5,500 year old image of somebody sitting in Badrasana. So there was something. But we don't know how systematic it was and how clear it was. It became full-on systematic and the tapasya, a yoga, a practice, a sadhana, about in the 6th century with Matsyendra and Goraksha. That's when they came with Kundalini Yoga and that's when we have the basics of Tantric Yoga. Well, this Tantric Yoga with Hatha Yoga and Kundalini it resulted also in a powerful vitality, youthful people doing Hatha Yoga. They had a lot of sexual energy. And then they were, at least the Vedantins, they were not eating for five days. And then their horniness disappeared by fasting. You can simply kill your horniness by not eating a few days. Then you are not horny, for sure. But the Kundalini Yogis... They were in the physical body, they were eating good food. When you read Hatha Yoga Pradipika, they tell you that you should eat butter, that you should eat milk, that you like a lot of mucus producing, a lot of kappa producing substances, because these people, if they were doing 100 Vudhyana Bandhas, they burned that mucus like nothing. So they needed it as a fuel, otherwise they would burn their body in too much Manipura, in too much Tapasya. And... These people, therefore, they had the thing go in the physical body, be very physical, and from the physical body take energy to God 
and consecrate it in Sahasrara, like in a fire ceremony, you know, from your Muladhara, sent it back to Sahasrara under the form of Kundalini. And then these people are the ones who invented the sexual yoga. Whatever rites of sex they were until then, such as things, the Kama Sutra does not, for example, mention any ritual sexuality for God. So the people who wrote the Kama Sutra, which is supposedly quite old, or perhaps the same age with uh, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, they were not mentioning ritual sex, sacred sex. This appears only together with the masters of Kundalini. The masters of Kundalini, they say, well, you can do the same thing while you have sex and then see what effects it will have. And this is how we have after the 5th century, 6th century, 7th century, then we have the big parts of tantric sex, of sexual yoga, of the tantric sexual yoga. Exactly at these centuries, 6, 7, 8, yoga moved to Tibet as well, through Padmasambhava, under the form of Buddhism. So yoga became Buddhistic. And uh, Marpa, the translator, who taught yoga to Milarepa, Therefore, the golden age of Tibetan yoga was in the 11th century. So 7th century, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th. They were absolutely gigantic and Indian yoga was going forward becoming on one hand Vedantic and on one hand Tantric. These were the modern trends in yoga and in Tibet it was becoming Tibetan yoga. And then something terrible or simply logically historical happened. Genghis Khan and his dynasty was born and these people conquered Asia. And conquering Asia, they allowed the Central Asia to be Islamic. Genghis Khan was not Islamic. They were whatever they were, some Mongol religion and more on the Chinese side. But they realized that they cannot control Central Asia which was very much Islamic at that time, except if they allowed the Islamic rulers to rule in the name of Genghis Khan, to pay the tax, but they had the freedom of religion. And these people took over all the Central Asia, and these are the people who conquered Kashmir, and then they went to India. Mysteriously, they never conquered Tibet, because Tibet was too fucked up to conquer. Tibet was so difficult geographically that even Genghis Khan and these guys, they said, you know what, leave those guys alone. You know, it's like, consider that a white spot on the map. Metaphysicians consider that Genghis Khan was given warnings because he tried to enter in the place of Shambhala, somewhere north of Tibet, and the Shambhala people told him, if you come here, we break your legs, you die. You know, so kind of stay away from... And then Genghis Khan defined the white spot in Tibet and North Tibet, where he said, that part we're not really interested into, and so on. But he gave the power over the Western Mongolian Empire to dynasties from Central Asia, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, all those nations in that part there, as well as Afghanistan and so on, and they conquered India. And then in 12, starting from the 12th century until the British took it over, for six centuries, India was under Islamic rulers. 
These Islamic rulers, they converted as many Hindus as they could to Islam, sometimes by the sword, but it did not surpass more than 25% of the population of India, maybe 30. And most of them nowadays, they are in Pakistan or in uh, the other side, in Bangladesh, in the central, in the core of India, not too much. And because of this, however, one conclusion was there. When the king is Muslim, when the emperor is Muslim, like Akbar and others like them, they despised Hinduism. They considered Jews and Christians like losers. How stupid you can be that Jehovah gave you the gift and then Jesus updated that gift and the Jews are losers once because they didn't catch that train and they stayed with the old things and they missed the Jew, the update of Jesus. And then 700 years, Muhammad came and he gave the second update. And then the Christians are losers because they did not convert to Islam. And the Jews are twice losers because they did not convert to Christianity and then they did not convert to Islam. They missed the train two times. Like now the truth is with Muhammad and with the Quran. So they had disrespect for Christians and Jews. But they had utter contempt for Hindus and Buddhists, considering these people pagans, heathen, they didn't even hear about Jehovah. These people didn't know shit about the one God, and they were therefore really inferior. With the Jews and with the Christians, you talked about uh, confused people who missed the train. But with Hindus and Buddhists, you you deal with heathens that have to be converted. Or to, just to save their soul. So, uh, they in this time, yoga was very persecuted. That's when the golden age of Kashmiri Shaivism stopped with Laleshwari and Jayarata in the 12th century. Laleshwari witnessed the big Sufi master who converted Kashmir to Islam. What to do? No? She considered Kashmiri Shaivism much higher than a popular religion like Islam. But what to do if people want that? People can have that. And in India, whoever did practice Hindu things, including yoga, was persecuted. Because of this, one thing happened. Tantra went down. The tantric music, the Rudravina, was taken by Islamic musicians. The temple dance was used for prostitution. All the dancers were considered just prostitutes. And um, all the temples and this, they were allowed for architectural purposes. And actually there are several Hindu big temples which were demolished and turned into mosques. And even today, the Muslims and the Hindus are fighting in India for those if they should come back to the Hindus or if they should stay as mosques and all that. Exactly as they did in Jerusalem, where on the place where the Temple of Solomon had been, the Muslims built the Golden Rock, the mosque, the Golden Mosque in Jerusalem. And today they are still fighting with the Jews because the Jews says, we have to take your fucking mosque down and to rebuild the Temple of Solomon. And uh, the Muslims say, over our dead body, will you do that? And the Christians look at them and they say, you are both of you confused. Jesus is the Savior. You know, So it's like everybody is believing something else. That's why it's so difficult. So, 
in uh, India, yoga was persecuted. And uh, the difference was that the tantric people used a lot of images, visual, auditory, music, dance, temples, places for collective sexual rituals or whatever they did. And these were very difficult in those 600 years because of the Muslim agents which were actively fighting against it, trying to put it down as much as possible. And uh, there is a beautiful movie about the imperial relationship between Akbar, perhaps the greatest of these moguls, of these great emperors of the Islamic dynasties in the medieval times, and he married a Hindu woman exactly to make peace with the Hindus, and she was called Joda Akbar, uh, is a very beautiful movie, which uh, we never watched, by the way, here in uh, Agama. It's a beautiful movie about the relationship between Akbar and this woman. This woman loved him, Akbar loved her, and both of them are very imperial people on Manipura. So it's a relationship very much on Manipura, superior. You know, it's not just this Mulatharas, Vadistana, na na na, Murmurgena, de na na na, Bombay, Bollywood shit. No, it's a, it's a very dignified relationship. There you can see precisely some of this. Fact is that in those six centuries, Tantra went down almost completely. It almost disappeared. Just a, a couple of centuries before that, they had built the great temples of Kajuraho, the erotic temples of India. It was the golden age of sexual Tantra and of Kundalini Yoga. And those became completely others. The Konarak temple in Orissa and others, which present erotic things. And they disappeared. They were ignored. We are lucky they have not been burned down or demolished. And therefore in India what survived very much was yoga which was done in the forest. Yoga done in the cities you didn't have too much because the cities belonged to the Islamic rulers. So the yogis who still wanted to stick to their original yoga, they went into the forest. And those were the Vedantins. That's why Vedanta survived and even took off and Tantra was more vulnerable. Together with that, we find in yoga important currents of Bhakti Yoga appearing in the, in the 15th century, 16th century, in the middle of this time. Uh, this is the time where grandmasters kept on writing texts of Hatha Yoga, like Svatmarama writing about Hatha Yoga Pradipika, Geranda, very late, almost in the British time, writing about, again, Hatha Yoga and Kundalini Yoga. So the Hatha Yoga was continuing, but here is, I'm telling you this because I want you to understand one particular aspect. Hatha Yoga in the 18th century, it was run by Vedantins, not by Tantrics. It was taken from the Tantrics and used by Vedantins. And because of this, the meaning of Tantra Yoga, of Hatha Yoga, started changing. Hatha Yoga started being used for harnessing the body and for punishing the body. Like, you want to move a lot, because you are vata or whatever. You know what the solution is? You go in siddhasana or in vajrasana and you don't move one finger for four hours. And that will feel, you will be felt like torture. 
because you want to move, you want to move, and you use your willpower and you say, fucking stay, stay. And therefore, Hatha Yoga becomes like a punishment, like a pain. It becomes like a mortification. While, for example, Patanjali never wrote such a thing that you have to punish yourself by doing Hatha Yoga. And the Tantric meaning is that you cosmicize the body and you go in resonance with the chakras of the universe. And therefore, it's not at all for punishing. It's an alchemy. It's a cosmicization of your body. But modern yoga in the 18th century and so on, Hatha Yoga, when it was still used, very often it started being misinterpreted and misused as um, mortification, as as a form of asceticism. Yeah, if you are really ascetic and you are fasting for three days and for three days you sit in the lotus pose. No, bang. But what is this? Is it a torture? Is it a, you know? Yes, it's a tapasya. You are supposed to do the, like, okay. Couldn't we find a less destructive tapasya? Couldn't we find a more intelligent tapasya? No, they didn't care because the philosophy is Vedantic. The thought behind it is Vedantic. And because of this, there is this big transformation of yoga. So yoga was on a down curse, especially a little bit Vedantic, but even that one. And then the British came. And the British thought that if you are not Protestant, Anglican, Christian, you are a loser and you'll go to hell anyway. Fanatic, Protestantic Christianity. And they were just trying to convert India to Christianity, if possible, to Anglican Christianity, plus all sorts of sects which were roaming around, and uh, yoga was still going down. As somebody was pointing out in the Q&A this week, the ritual of sati was eliminated almost totally. The tuggies of Bengal were eliminated. The sexual ritual of the tantrics, which were still there, and the sexual symbolism was eliminated to the point where in 1930-something, Mahatma Gandhi, who had been educated in Oxford or in Cambridge, I don't know which was which because Gandhi was in Oxford and uh, Aurobindo was in Cambridge, or the other way around, it doesn't matter. One of them was in Oxford and one of them was in Cambridge. Mahatma Gandhi, who was brainwashed in Cambridge or in Oxford, he was asking to demolish the temple of Kajuraho and parts of the temple of Konarak because they presented these pornographic scenes, these scenes of group sex, anal sex, oral sex, and even animal sex. There is a scene of animal sex. You know? And Mahatma Gandhi asked that it should be wiped out of history. And it was Rabindranath Tagore, the writer, the poet, the Nobel Prize winner, who wrote an angry letter to him. And he said, shut up, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just a fucking Puritan, brainwashed by the British. You know, our ancestors were... For example, in the 12th century, when the Islamics took over India, women were not wearing a bra. The sari was not containing the top. The top was made compulsory by the British, and already the Muslims were embarrassed to see the women's breasts, and they were asking them to cover it. Until the 12th century, there was a Latin 
traveler who came to India, which is, who was called Alberuni, and Alberuni wrote a famous text, which is today just Google Alberuni's India, where he described India in the 11th century as a Catholic uh, missionary. Um, you know, sex was free. Women were half naked. It was a totally different, and nobody was embarrassed about it. You know, it was very free in this way. India today became so idiosyncratic and so odd. Women, you girls, if you are traveling, if you go to India, you cannot show your knees even. Your skirt should always be lower than your knees because the Indians are like horny baboons. If they see a white girl showing her knees, they drag her into a corner and they rape her. You know, it's just insane, you know. But India was not like this eight centuries ago. This is what six centuries of Islam and two centuries of Britain made to India. They created sexual repression, frustration, and then the yoga related with these things was also demolished. And thus, starting with the 12th century until the 18th century, we can quote two, three great yogis. Two, three great yogis. Chaitanya in the Vaishnava mysticism of Lord Krishna, Sri Chaitanya. A few others, a few others. You know, Geranda in the 17th century writing Geranda Samhita and something in the authorship of Shiva Samhita or something. No, it's like very little happened in the last, in those eight centuries from 12th century to 18th century, six centuries of India. And then in the 19th century, the big luck came with Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna was supposed to be an avatar, and one of the missions of this avatar that was Ramakrishna, it was that he revived yoga. He did yoga, he showed the power of yoga, he got results through yoga, he taught yoga, he spoke about yoga, he inspired many other people to go into yoga, including into the Mahavidya yoga, into Tantric yoga, worshipping Kali in his case. And basically, this is where yoga started being reborn. Together with Ramakrishna, we have Ramprasad. Together with Ramakrishna, we have Vivekananda and other 11 monks of the Ramakrishna order, Abedananda, Saradananda, all those. After Ramakrishna, we start having the dynasty of Lahiri Mahasaya, Sri Yukteswar, Paramahamsa Yogananda. After um, Ramakrishna, we suddenly have the emergence of Ramana Maharishi. After Ramakrishna, we have the emergence of Mananda Mai. We have the emergence of Swami Shivananda Sarasvati. We have the emergence a bit later in the Second World War, the emergence of Sri Aurobindo. We have the emergence of a few great, some of these had great disciples like Swami Shivananda, had great disciples like Chidananda, Krishnananda, Satchitananda, and not to forget the famous Satyananda, the author of the Bihar School of Yoga. And in this way, uh, there have been, after Ramakrishna, suddenly yoga blossomed again. And this is how we got the modern yoga. And somehow the people in the 19th, 20th century, they managed to save whatever could be saved from yoga. Whatever they could not save, some of it had survived in Tibet like the technology of pova, 
and the art of dyeing and other things. And today we can re-import them back from Tibetan yoga. So yoga started with the old Vedic yoga, which nobody understands much of because you have to be in a special state of consciousness for it. An important addition is Buddha, who showed that nirvana is possible by doing meditation. Patanjali has brought the, first, the next landmark by bringing us the classical yoga, the Raja Yoga. Matsyendra and Goraksha have brought us Hatha Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, Laya Yoga, all the tantric forms of yoga, which Agama is very good at. It's, this is some of the core teachings in Agama. Shankaracharya has brought to us the Vedantic Yoga, which even Ramakrishna in the 19th century benefited from, and people like Shivananda and others, they write beautifully about Vedanta. 10th century, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th century, Kashmiri Shaivism, like the diamond of yoga, perhaps the most exclusive form of tantric yoga, philosophical and metaphysical in Kashmir, very isolated, a diamond, a pearl, a gem, really isolated, but very strong today, one of the powerful things in Agama until today. In the same centuries, sexual tantra, here and there, mostly in the northern parts of India and in Nepal, a lot of the Mahavidya yoga, sexual yoga, all this tradition blossomed in those centuries, between 7 to 12. Then, bad times for yoga, and only Bhakti yoga and Vedanta yoga made some waves in those six centuries. And then finally, Ramakrishna, the prince of yoga, Romain Roland, the French writer, he nicknamed him the Prince of Yoga because Ramakrishna is the one who brought that yoga to the awareness of the people. And then Vivekananda preached it and others and others. And in this way, yoga became the big thing again until today when a part of yoga is just fitness monkey yoga, gymnastics, and so on. But still, it has the advantage that many people say, hey, I know about yoga, I do yoga. One could argue, hey, you know very superficially, you don't know everything which is to be known. But hey, at least it's good you heard the name, at least it's good you did some exercises from yoga, then you can choose to go deeper, you can choose to see what the real uh, aspects of traditional yoga are. So... Uh, in this way, I made a travel with you, and one thing is a clear thing which I did not mention and I wish to mention. Yoga became more and more bodily. Yoga became more and more like engineering. Yoga became more and more technical because people could not stay. It's like people had taken, I don't know, to say something out of the blue. I don't want, uh, I'm surrounded by the use of drugs in this island, and I don't want to encourage people in that direction. But it's exactly like some people would say that uh, some people in the old days, the rishis, they took some sort of Vedic LSD, and they were high on acid. And then when they were hearing some of the Vedic hymns and Upanishadic and Puranas, they were going in samadhi and they were seeing Shiva. They were being with the gods. They were, you know, 
because these people had a high state of suggestibility. Remember that in Satya Yuga, if they just close their eyes, in a matter of seconds, they could be in Samadhi. That's what the history tells us. And therefore, these people, when you just did the Vedic hymns, it was like a guide to lead your mind and soul into a state of ecstasy among the gods or higher. But people at the time of Matsyendra and Goraksha, they were not so spiritual. They were lower than at that time. They were smaller pygmies of Kali Yuga. They were smaller souls. And then people like Goraksha and Matsyendra, they realized it's not enough. It's not enough to just give them some Vedic hymns and some Puranic legends. You have to teach them to stand on their head. You have to teach them to do the square pranayama. You have to teach them to do this and the Udhyana Bandha. And in this way, yoga, as the centuries have passed, became more and more technical. Already Patanjali defined Samyama, how to do Samyama on the pole star, on your belly button, on an elephant, on this, on that, you know. That's already quite technical, but it's still only with the mind. And then Goraksha. Matsyendra, the tradition of Kashmiri Shaivism, the Mahavidya traditions and Tantric traditions, they focus on things like you take the body of a naked woman and you transfigure her. No, this is not a hymn to Varuna. It's a naked woman and you look at her toes and you look at her yoni and you look at her nipples and you look at her face and you look at her belly button. You know, and all of it becomes a goddess. And it's a meditation. But you need a very crude physical support because otherwise you are too far from it. You, are, you have not eaten your LSD and you are not high. You, you don't catch fire. You need support to catch fire. And that's why yoga in the modern days becomes more and more a yoga with support, with the body, with the chakras, with women, with pictures, with yantras, with mantras, with concrete things because the modern man is extremely distracted and extremely insensitive and extremely engrossed in maya and in the matter. And to take such a person out of the matrix, to take such a person out of their hypnosis, you need to use strong methods, diet, hatha yoga, kundalini. You need to shake them really, really much so that the person slowly, slowly wakes up. This is one of the things which is important for you to remember. Modern yoga is acting with diet, is acting with sex, is acting with the physical body, Hatha Yoga, Kundalini and all the rest, is acting with chakras, it's acting with energies, it's acting with a lot of concrete things which have to be defined very engineeringly. It's not like, ah, oh, you can do it like that, and if not like that, you can also do it like that, and if not, do it any way you want it. You know, it's very few yoga techniques about which I would be able to say such a thing. I would paralyze to tell you about, I don't know, Viparita Karani Mudra, that you can do it any way it comes to you, you know, because you can get a heart attack and die, you know. You don't do Viparita Karani Mudra in a ridiculous way, because you can destroy yourself, you know. And that's why there are things, it's like I would say about electricity. Ah, you know, the electric wires, you stretch them any way you want and combine them any way you want, and you cross your fingers and hope they will work, you know. 
you will electroshock yourself to death. You'll get short circuits. You will get installations which don't work. You'll get. It has to be done according to certain principles. No, when in Hatha Yoga we say don't touch your left leg with the right leg, it's like in electricity when they tell you don't touch the blue wire with the red wire. No, because what you get is a short circuit. No? So in this way, this is characteristic that yoga started as a poetic thing, as a metaphoric thing, because people were already high and they could go into it very easily. And then it had to become more and more acute, more and more concrete, more and more precise technically, because people were more and more confused into this. So, in this way, yoga has reached today into Kali Yuga. There are different lineages coming from the great gurus of the 19th and 20th century. There are also many fake lineages which come from gurus who are not really gurus. Like there were teachers of Hatha Yoga and so on, which were just gymnasts. Excellent, flexible gymnasts who lived a hundred years. Great. If that's what you think that yoga is, a monkey exercise to keep you youthful so that you can live a hundred years, go ahead. I'm happy to see people who will tell me, Swamiji, I did yoga and I lived 103 years of age. Good. Congratulations. That's good. The question is, when you died, were you happy? Were you enlightened? Did you feel that you fulfilled the goal of your life? Did you feel that you found yourself? Did you feel that you knew what your dharma was? If not, then it's not a big accomplishment that you lived 103 years and you were very flexible and could put your head between your legs. That's a minor thing in the end. So, um, one should follow the spirit of yoga because the yogis were gymnosophists. They were philosophers. They were trying to find the answer to the question Who am I? Why am I here? Where do I come from? Where am I going to? Because without those, you can live. My father never did any yoga. And he lived until the age of 89. He ate meat. He was drinking his occasional wine. He was, you know, like he didn't do anything of religious nature. I I would not say that he was an unreligious person. But he was not exaggeratedly religious either. And he lived 89 years. Do I consider that a success? No, definitely not. And that's why I'm asking you also, look what is a success, what would make your life a success, what would make you smile when you die, and say, I
coming. One, two, three. Oh, now it's coming. I can see it. We're on. So, as you can see in Kali Yuga, we have still the spirit of it, but we don't have battery in the camera. So, let's conclude. The story of yoga, the way I've told it to you, it seems to be the story of Indian spirituality, and it seems to be the history of humanity. Yeah? There are different phases. Yoga applies to different generations of people who have a different psychology, who have a different understanding of themselves, of the universe. So yoga is beautiful because it becomes modernized. Yoga, for example, we use music in yoga. Exception made of the tantric masters like Apinavagupta and others who played their own music. Music was not used much in yoga. Most of the yogis lived in silence in the Himalayas. So yoga with music, which we use extensively in Agama, is a thing of the 20th century, after music could be recorded on magnetic tapes and replayed at will again and again. And so, uh, yoga is growing, is modernizing. Now we have a video yoga. We have people who watch movies on video and they say, wow, I felt my heart chakra so much during this movie. Hey, Ramakrishna didn't do that. But it doesn't mean that what you do is not right. It's right. It's video yoga. They didn't have video recordings in the 19th century. Now you can do yoga even with video recordings. So yoga is alive. It grows. It adapts to people of this age. Technology of yoga is alive and changing in the good way, in the adaptive way. And that's why I personally, I think that the history of yoga is fascinating. And it follows both the history of India and the history of humanity in general. I think that nowadays, in the end of Kali Yuga, yoga is one of the most alive spiritual methods that is still left on the planet Earth, and that with yoga you can get very concrete results, starting from your physical body health, well-being, balance, and so on, but also finishing with your emotions, mind, spirit, aspiration, openness, happiness, sublimation, and all the other great words which define what's happening in spirituality. I was happy to be with you tonight in this satsang to remind to us our roots, our origins, where do we come from. We are the heirs of one of the greatest methods of liberation, a method of salvation. The yogis have looked since ever for how to liberate themselves, how to enlighten themselves, how to save themselves, how to live their lives meaningfully. And that's what yoga is. Thank you all for joining. See you further in the activities of Agama.